Town Boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Well, Bob, we've got a shots fired call, multiple people down Mandalay Bay and the adjoining venue across the street from Mandalay Bay. It is sounding from the radio traffic like multiple shooters, multiple locations. So let's get our plan together. Well, Ron, we're working plain clothes and uh, it's uh, nighttime and uh, we hear the uh, radio calls and we're responding to the area. And as we're responding, we're listening very closely to what's going on on the radio. So. The one thing we need to remember as, as detectives in, in plain clothes is that the uniformed officers are involved in an event that is a once in a lifetime for very few people are gonna see this type of event in a magnitude like this. So they're, they're responding. They're, the first thing they're trying to do is uh, trying to find out, uh, take care of the people who are injured and, and at the same time trying to find out where the shots are fired. And listening to the audio tapes, I heard reports of shooters in at least three or four different locations, uh, three or four different shooters. There was uh, an event like this, you'd expect there'd be some confusion about what's going on. And it took about about 12 to 15 minutes to actually, for somebody to say, the shooter looks like he's on the 32nd floor and they actually at some point gave a room number. And up until this point, Ron, I think our job was to just stay away from the uniformed people and let them do their job. Let the first responders get in there and do what they have to do. Our job is to, if they need something surveilled, if they need somebody uh, contacted, we can do that. But at this point, uh, that would be our job. Now, when they finally say it's Mandalay Bay, here's the floor, here's the room number, I think our job now is to go to the Mandalay Bay 
go work with security, find out who's who's uh, registered in that room, and start doing things like uh, where's his car, um, who is he? Let's do a background on him. Let's find out uh, arrest. Let's find out where he lives, where he works, family, friends, uh, girlfriend. Uh, and start running uh, database searches to find out all we can about this person. Because as you know, at this point, we don't even know if he's still in the room. So what we're trying to get ready to do is the next step if needed in case he's not there. Now where do we go find him? So That's exactly right, Bob. And one of the problems that uh, you know probably our listeners have from watching too much crime TV uh, is, is that uh, they think that detectives like us get right involved in the pursuit of the suspects and you know the encounter and everything like that and and that's not our function here our function is to let the uniformed uh personnel get involved in that get an access entry team in there let's get our SWAT team and in this particular case they didn't have a SWAT team deployed so they just had to grab officers off the street armed only with pistols i think only one guy had a carbine and they've got to go up 32 floors to encounter this guy and engage him that's not our job. That's correct. And and what they did, I thought they did a very good job doing. They they set up a, a command post, a triage center. Uh, they made uh, they had an incident command system, which is uh, something that's practiced around the country now. You know, everybody's trained on it. And what they did was they formed squads of four or five uh, officers, and they went up to secure the area. They they didn't go up there for the purpose of, of breaching the room. They were, they were going to wait till the SWAT team did that because they have the training and they have the equipment. But while all this is going on, which took over an hour, you and I can be in there finding everything we can about this person. And, for example, one thing we would find out is that he's a pilot and he has an airplane. Let's get somebody down there to find out where this airplane is. Let's see, let's see if, uh, you know, if he's ready. To, that's part of his escape plan. Let's find out if he's filed a flight plan. Let's let's talk to all of his uh, family and friends that we can find, his employers. We don't know if there's co-conspirators here. We need to keep an eye on his car. If he has other cars, we need we need to do that. We need to find out everything we can about this person, his, his prior life, because we may be in a situation where we, now we have to go find him. And, you know, that's right. And, you know, speaking of Mandalay Bay, and Mandalay Bay isn't any different than any of the other casinos uh I've ever been in, and, and as well as our listeners, every square inch of the casino property, outside and inside, with the exceptions of the bathrooms, are covered electronically uh, through CCTV or closed-circuit television surveillance, and that is including the parking garage. So if we can establish when he checked in, we can get into the CCTV, and we can start taking a look at that parking garage and take a look at vehicles. Now, obviously, as you said, we've done a criminal history check. We've done a Department of Motor Vehicles and driver's license check by now. We have a pretty good indication of every vehicle that is owned by this person, and that really helps us because every vehicle that goes into the garage is monitored electronically, it is videoed, and it is also photographed, and that will give us a good idea of where the suspect's vehicle is parked in the parking complex. That's correct. And this is all things you and I can do and, and what other detectives are available. And I remember it's nighttime, so you know probably the number of detectives available is limited versus daytime. But I would expect that as many detectives and officers are going to be called out as possible uh, as soon as this event started. So these are the kinds of things we can do. We can look at video. We can, we can print out photos. We can print out photos of the car just to have them available. Um, there's a lot of things electronic. We can find out how many times he stayed there. 
maybe find out who he stayed with. Uh, go back and look at videos, all the videos you were just talking about to see if anybody helped him take those weapons up to the room. And, you know, we're not looking just for the active shooter, but maybe for somebody that actually uh, helped him, uh, a, a co-conspirator. So this is all the things that you and I would be thinking about and, and getting prepared for. And even if, as it turned out, even though he was found in the room deceased, Everything we've done is going to be used. We're, we're going to be retracing everything eventually. Exactly. And now, you know, we've got a bifurcated crime scene at least. Obviously, we have several different crime scenes because we have people down that as far as 600 yards away from Mandalay Bay. But the, but the two major crime scenes are going to be the room up on the 32nd floor and also the venue. So, Bob, you and I would probably at this point, being the first two responding detectives, may very well split our resources and you'd probably go up to Mandalay Bay and I'd probably go to the venue. Bob, let's talk about what you would do up at the Mandalay Bay 32nd floor suite. Okay, and we're, we're talking about af after the... Uh, after, after entry, he's down, self-inflicted gunshot wound. The room is secure. So what we're looking at now is we've got a, a, a real pile of weapons there that we've got to go through and we're going to start processing the crime scene and we're going to start looking at things like how many shots were fired um we've got at least 400 uh, sh uh, victims down there that, that at least i could get off the report here and there's going to be a lot of ballistics there's going to be a, a lot of uh, analysis going on and this is all going to be delegated out to people who know what they're doing remember a homicide detective is not necessarily an expert in everything we're going, we're going to need ballistics experts. We're going to need ATF up there, alcohol, tobacco, firearms to do backgrounds on all these weapons, find out where they came from, find out where all the ammunition came from. And it's, a, it's, go, it's going to be just a horrendous kind of a process to get this all done. Remember, all these shooting veterans are going to go to the hospital and, and get treated. Somebody has got to t keep track of who these people are, and when they take bullets out of them, they've got to, uh, they've got to keep track. There's a chain of evidence uh, on the uh, bullets that are taken out. They've all got to be accounted for. Medical reports are going to be filed, and we have to reconcile what we're seeing at the hospital and the reports and the evidence with what we're seeing at the scene. Can you imagine uh, a victim that, uh, where they take a bullet out and it doesn't match any of the weapons at, at the uh, in the room? So we need to, you know, eventually all this is going to come together in, a, in a, just a huge stack of reports and somebody has to go through and make sure everything fits and you know, in a crime scene like this especially the one across the street where i would be at which is the the country western venue with you know 58 people uh murdered and we have at least 400 people that have been wounded in some area those bullets even though uh we know now that they came from one location uh, the reports from all of the witnesses, well, not all of the witnesses, but a number of the witnesses, were that there were actually shooters in the venue. And so we have to reconcile those locations where those victims were uh, from, from both memory and DNA. Uh, also, uh, any type of ballistics that we find at the scene, rounds that had skipped off the ground, because some rounds actually we know now skipped off the ground and hit multiple people. And so all of that has to be reconciled. And that crime scene is still an active crime scene today. They still have it roped off, and they are still recovering uh, evidence from that crime scene. So just picture a crime scene that had about 20,000 people inside of it. 
and what it would take to reconcile an area like that. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and law enforcement expert. And with me today, I've got one of our team members, our homicide expert, Bob Prevo. So, Bob, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, the now infamous Las Vegas shooting, uh, the homicide suspect being Stephen Paddock. And as you recall, uh, he got up into the 32nd floor of Mandalay Bay. Uh, with uh, sniper rifles and assault rifles and rained fire down for about 17 minutes. 58 people were killed, over 500 people uh, were injured. Uh, being a homicide expert, Bob, you'd, you'd sort of take us through what an investigation of this nature is all about and, and what the investigators are looking at uh, with respect to not only uh, the uh, investigation itself and the interviews, but also some of the evidence that's involved. Sure, you know, of course, these incidents are, are really tragic, and in this case, you used up every first responder resource you had in the in the area of Las Vegas that day, and you had uh, a primary scene, you had a scene where the shooter was, these people were taken to various hospitals, uh, every, every resource was tied up. So the first probably day of this whole incident is just handling the first responder incident uh, type of re requirements and also finding out where the shooter is, responding to where the shooter is, taking out the shooter, and securing, securing as much evidence as you can. That's your immediate goal uh, is to, is to uh, make the scene safe and, and, uh, and find out all the shooters. So that was, that was what was happening that in the first probably eight hours. Well, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I noticed about this investigation and coming from the uh, standpoint of the first responders, I think one of the reasons that they thought that there were multiple shooters was because he was dropping people uh, six, 700 yards away. Uh, you know, he didn't kill anybody in the parking lot of Mandalay Bay, didn't kill anybody uh, in the facility of Mandalay Bay. It was across the boulevard where the uh, large uh, Country Western concert venue was, which is adjacent to the jet fuel tanks and adjacent to McLaren Airport. But he actually shot and killed a couple of people in the parking lot of one of the casinos about six or 700 yards away. So uh, I think that's one of the reasons why they thought they had multiple shooters in multiple locations. And you can imagine the chaos when it first started, uh, just trying to determine where the shots were coming from. I mean, you, you've got a, a large venue of people there. They're all looking around. They don't know what's going on. They're seeing people drop. You don't even, at that point, you don't even know which way to run for safety. It's just, it's just that chaotic. And when you have that many first responders coming, fire, EMT, police, 
and you don't know you don't know where anybody is. You don't know where the shooters are. You don't know anything, and you're just out in the open trying to trying to help the injured. So this is this is a real bad situation for first responders to be in. And then when they figured out where the shooter was, now you have to assemble a team to go in there and do an entry. That takes time to get everybody together, figure out the logistics of where they're going and how they're going to get in there. They don't know how many people they're dealing with at that point. They don't know anything. And, and, you, know, uh, and you know, also, uh, just for our listeners, the way that uh, police tactically respond to an active shooter has changed ever since the Columbine uh, shooting incident in uh, in Colorado. You know, before we would uh, isolate and contain, we'd wait uh, for SWAT, we'd establish uh, inner and outer perimeter if we could, and then uh, once SWAT arrived and negotiators would arrive, that that's when we would, uh, you know, breach entry and actually try to communicate. And what we found in Columbine is that that was no longer applicable because active shooters have no intention uh, of negotiating with people. They just want to kill as many people as quickly as they can. So now uh, we're pretty much forced to, as soon as we locate where the shooter or shooters are, uh, we've got to get a team together and breach entry right away and start uh, you know, the process of searching uh, to try to take out that threat. That's correct. And, and like I said, it, it, that takes time. Uh, you've got to get your entry SWAT team together. Remember, they work as a team. So, so these are the people you want going in there. And, uh, you know, this guy was wearing uh, body armor and all that. Not, not that I don't, I don't think he had any intention of escaping alive, but he wanted to keep shooting. Even when they came in, he wanted to get off as many shots as he could. And uh, this person is very dangerous because... You know, at that point, he's, he doesn't care. Yeah, I, I think the, the listeners need to understand and appreciate uh, just what a logistical nightmare it is for the entry team uh, to get into Mandalay Bay because he was on the 32nd floor. And so you've got to use either a service elevator or you've got to use the same elevators that people use. And, you know, once you get up to the 32nd floor, now you've got to sort of figure out where that person is. And I've actually been in Mandalay Bay up in the uh, 30, uh, the, the 30 area of floors on, on business before. And so just picture a very long and narrow hallway that's about 50 yards long. And then you only have a couple of areas where you can get to cover, and it's about every 25 yards. So that entry team has got to get up in that elevator, then they got to get out on that floor, and then they have to try to make it down the hallway. And as we remember about this incident, uh, Paddock had strategically located a couple of uh, wireless video cameras. He had one in the door itself, and then he had one outside of the door on a uh, was sort of a cart that uh, you know the uh, service people used to bring in food and he had put that uh, that one camera right there looking right down the hallway so those officers had no idea uh, including the security guard who was there first Ramos Campos a Mandalay Bay security guard he had no idea that Paddock could see uh, out into that hallway, and that created a tremendous uh, officer safety problem for our entry team. Correct, and, and not only that, when these officers get off the elevator or they come up the stairs, whatever they're doing, they don't know if there's trip wires down out down on the on the on the floor. They don't know if there's uh, 
bombs place. They don't know if there's uh, other suspects in other rooms that are just waiting for them to come up and, and they could appear out of a room and start shooting. I mean, these officers had no idea what was going to happen at that point. And, and they really were outgunned. I mean, we had, uh, we had officers with pistols, and I think one had a, had a shotgun, the other one had a carbine. But at the same time, uh, and some of the investigative information was, is when they went down that hallway, uh, Paddock unleashed uh, a couple of hundred rounds, you know, going down that hallway. So uh, I think there was some significant problems with regards to how they were going to take this guy on. And uh, they actually ended up waiting for uh, the shooting to stop. That's correct. And, and uh, you know, unlike other circumstances where you're, you're going to uh, uh, plan on how you're going to make the entry and you're going to uh, kind of think about what you're going to do, when the bullets are flying, your priority is to stop the shooter. And you don't have time to get the floor plans out and, and, uh, and look at alternatives for how to get in there and, and do what you need to do. You've got to do it right now because... Every time, every, you know, every shot, somebody's getting hit. Right, exactly. Hey, Bob, why don't you take us through uh, the post-shooting uh, investigation? So now, uh, Paddock is dead. Uh, everybody that's that uh, he was going to shoot has been shot and, and wounded. And now uh, we have our uh, entry team has breached entry uh, into that uh, very large suite. And if people remember on the 32nd floor of Mandalay Bay, it was a corner suite. So we actually had uh, two fields of view. And uh, that was also pretty scary because he was shooting, running from one location to the other. And he was shooting uh, in that suite from two different areas, raining fire down on those people. So Bob, now you're the detective and uh, the scene has been secured. Why don't you take us through that first crime scene, which is going to be the suite, and just let people know what the investigative protocol is going to be. Sure. The priority here is to, once we know that the scene is safe, uh, the room and that whole area up there becomes a crime scene, just like any other crime scene. And what you're going to do now is split up in teams. We're going to find out who this person is, uh, try and find out where he lives, maybe where he works, uh, you know, and we're going to send teams out to do interviews to find out, you know, this person's background, to get any any clues about, you know, were there other suspects involved, um, do a, do as much background on them as we can right away, and at some point we're going to all these victims that were shot, they're going to be looking at what they were shot with. And eventually, those will be matched up with what was in the room, and you know, one thing you want to find out is were there any any slugs taken out of victims that did not come from the from the uh, firearms that were in that room. In other words, was there another shooter somewhere that we don't know about? And these could all go to motive two. So we're, we're going to split up and we're going to do all the forensics. Uh, it's it's going to involve a huge amount of resources to do this. And there's a there's coordination at the top, uh, and there'll be assignments depending on what they find out. And one interview they may, that may lead them to another interview, may lead them to another search warrant. And this can go on for uh, weeks and months. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up uh, because I was recently uh, in Las Vegas and had an opportunity to go uh, right to that crime scene at, uh, at Mandalay Bay, the outside crime scene, which was the venue. And just to let the people know, and it's been a couple of months since this shooting, uh, that area is still quadrant off. They are still uh, recovering evidence uh, from that crime scene which is just amazing. And I, and I have to tell you, and you and I have seen, you know, thousands of crime scenes together. 
uh, I just have to tell our audience that that is absolutely the biggest crime scene I've ever seen in my life and probably the biggest crime scene in the history of the United States. I mean, this is this is something so unusual. This is like 9/11. I mean, this is a once-in-a-lifetime type of a crime scene and a, and a type of a crime where there, there, there's going to be a learning process for months and years as, as to how they did this. You know, that, that's absolutely correct. And you know, homicide teams uh, work hand in hand with forensic teams, and you know, that's the nature of what you know this program, a thread of evidence, is all about. And so we are going to do the same thing in investigating this particular crime that our forensic death investigation team does uh, when we go to uh, much smaller scale crimes. We're going to employ our uh, ballistic scientist. Uh, we're going to bring out our, our Forvis 360, which is our measuring devices, and uh, get uh, 3D uh, pictures of this whole thing. We're going to put a drone up in the air. We're going to uh, plot evidence. There's going to be literally tens of thousands of pieces of evidence in this crime scene, uh, in all of the different crime scenes that, that all have to be reconciled and uh, to, to point a picture or put a picture together of what Mr. Paddock was all about and why he committed this horrific crime. Sure. And I'll just give you a, a, just one small example of uh, during a homicide investigation. If I have, if I have a, a murder weapon and I've got a, a suspect, and in this case, it's going to trial, and I want to know where the ammunition for this gun came from, and I want to know if this subject ever bought ammunition somewhere, which would add to the circumstantial evidence. Uh, I, may, I may go to every place that sells ammunition, and it may take me two to three weeks to do it and look at their ammunition purchase records to see if I come up with this guy's name. Now, in the old days, this stuff wasn't automated. You had to actually go there and look through the logs, and it was just so time-consuming. And the same thing with interviews. You'll do endless interviews for weeks and months uh, in preparation for a trial. Now, I know in this case there was no trial, but you have to treat it like there could be. There may be a co-conspirator out there we don't know about yet. So you have to treat it as if you're gaining evidence and you're working this case to go to trial because you, you may, in fact, have to do that. And, and, you know, Bob, you're absolutely right because just this last weekend uh, they made an arrest on an individual uh, that they had identified forensically as selling ammunition, both tracer ammunition and also uh, armored piercing ammunition uh, to Stephen Paddock. Uh, I know for a fact that uh, one of the uh, bags of ammunition that he had in the room that he had not shot uh, had the name of the ammunition supplier on it. And uh, then they started uh, fingerprinting uh, the cartridge cases and they managed to get uh, finger, latent fingerprints uh, that confirmed that uh, the name of the guy uh, and the person was the same person that had actually manufactured that ammunition. And I know uh, law enforcement just arrested this person uh, just this last weekend and he's facing some pretty serious federal charges. Sure, and if, and if that ammunition was used in the shooting, and it's illegal ammunition to possess or sell, um, and like you say, there's going to be other criminal charges coming, and there's all going to be some civil liability here from whoever was selling the stuff. So eventually, you're going to you're going to have some civil civil litigation, which is going to require a lot of forensic evidence. Yeah, absolutely.
We'll come right back after our break. And this is A Thread of Evidence. And you're listening to America Out Loud. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. You're back with a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. I'm your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, and we've been speaking with homicide expert Bob Prevo. You know, Bob... When we uh, when we broke, we just started to get into the issue of motive because that's an extremely important component of, of an overall homicide investigation. And I'd like our listeners to know that active shooters are completely different people than normal, if we could say normal, homicide suspects because there are essentially five separate motives for an active shooter. Number one is revenge and anger. Number two the shooter would have mental health difficulties, mental health issues. Number three, anti-government sentiment. Number four, anti-religious sentiment. And number five, terrorism. You know, it's so interesting that this particular active shooter incident occurred uh, at a business, which was Mandalay Bay, because 45% of all of our active shooters and the research we've done between uh, 2000 and 2013, 45% of active shootings have taken places in business. And then also, you know, we have more than one crime scene. So, of course, those people, the vast majority of all of the victims were shot across the street in an open venue where they had a country uh, western concert. So it's also interesting to note that 9% of uh, active shootings take place in, uh, in open spaces. So 45% in businesses, 24% at schools, 10% at government properties, 9% at open spaces, and in houses of worship, 6%. So Bob, maybe you can talk about the motive aspect of this. The motive aspect on this shooting is uh, not known at the moment. Uh, They're still working on it, but uh, there's, you know, if you you go through your list of of the things you've mentioned... um, he doesn't really fall into uh, you know a set category that, that we can see so far. Uh, here, here's a guy that was a pilot. He owned a twin-engine plane. He could have easily filled up this thing with gasoline and a couple of bombs and just flown it into the crowd, and it certainly would have killed more people. Uh, the difference between this and like 9/11, where they just flew a big plane into a building and and the uh, pilot died, the terrorist died with. Uh, with the uh, people in the building uh, is different than a person like this who goes up in a room 
and shoots people and watches them actually uh, fall, actually watches them go down. Now, you know, a, a profiler would look at that and, and come up with different conclusions and, it, and, and answer the question, is this a different type of person who just wants to go out and kill a lot of people? So it comes down to how do they kill the people? What, what does this mean? What's the difference between just running an airplane into a building and knowing people are going to die with you and actually staying alive while you're shooting people and watching them die while you're still alive? And this is things they have to look at. These are, you know, these are motives that um, don't really f clearly fall into terrorism, government, uh, religion, you know, mental health issue. Pro obviously, there's a mental health issue there somewhere, but which way it leans, I don't know. So this is all the things they have to look at. You know, and, and I think you raised a really good point uh, because, you know, statistics tell us that 40% of active shooters uh, die by suicide. So they die by their own hand or they die in a what we refer to as suicide by cop or an SBC scenario. So we know that Stephen Paddock, uh, you know, died, uh, you know, by his own hands uh, at that scene. He didn't have an opportunity to do an SBC scenario, a suicide by cop scenario. But I think you bring up a very valid point, And I don't know if someone's brought that point up before, but the difference between, you know, flying an airplane into a crowd of people where he could have killed probably 10,000 people, probably could have done far more damage than we saw at 9-11 with respect to uh, a body count. But I, I really, uh, you know, appreciate what you're saying here with respect to him wanting to watch his victims die. Because active shooters uh, will shoot anybody. So they're very indiscriminate uh, in their victims, in their targets. They'll shoot children, they'll shoot women, pregnant women, they'll shoot the handicapped, uh, old people, young, it, it doesn't really matter because those are targets to them. That is a body count that they're trying to develop. So I, I think you're onto something there. Well, and the other thing is, he is quite a distance from where these people are versus, a, uh, let's say, a guy that goes into a schoolyard and kills, uh, kills children. That's up close. That's uh, you know he's within fifty, hundred feet of these uh, these kids, and yeah, very sick act. But I think there's a difference between what what he does in a schoolyard and what this guy did. This took a lot of planning. He's he's way far away. He could he could have just gone to the concert and probably just stood out out in the middle there and just killed as many people until the cops got there, just by standing right right there within you know fifty feet. So there, there might be something to it about being standoffish like this. You know, Bob, going back to the interview process uh, that you mentioned, uh, Mary Lou Danley was identified as Stephen Paddock's longtime girlfriend. Uh, she was actually born in Australia. Uh, she moved to the Philippines and uh, became a Philippine uh, citizen. I think she held dual citizenship uh, between Australia and the Philippines. Uh, what would be the process of interviewing someone like Mary Lou Danley? Can you take us through that and sort of explain what types of probative questions you'd be asking and, and what you would be trying to uh, get from Miss Danley? Sure. Uh, and I, from what I understand in this case, it, it, she had left the country, but I guess they, they got a hold of her and they finally interviewed her. So I'd, I'd like to sit down with her and find out, you know, how long were they together? 
Uh, what was their relationship? What were their plans together? Were they planning on getting married? Uh, you know, was he planning a life with this person, or was it just a temporary thing? Where, where have they gone? What does he What does he talk about? What are his hobbies? Are his hobbies guns? Um, what kind of TV shows does he like to watch? Uh, you know, you can think of a hundred different questions to ask her, but but when after you do it all, it'll all tell a story. What books does he like to read? Um, you know, what is what kind of hobbies does he have? You know, all these things are important, and and as she talks, that's going to lead lead to other subjects that you can you can cover with her. And she would probably, in my opinion, she'd probably be one of your best interviews um, if you could get her to open up. Right. Now, let's talk about that opening up process, because, you know, she's not a suspect in the crime. She's what we would refer to as either a uh, person of interest or a percipient witness, probably looking at her more as a percipient witness, because they don't have her at the scene. Uh, And I think initially they didn't have anything that linked her to the crime, and she was, in fact, out of the country. And uh, it's okay. Let's do that again, Bob. Okay. So yeah, go ahead. that's all right. Uh, I think Mary Lou Danley would be an extremely important uh, person for the law enforcement investigators to interview. Uh, she knew uh, Paddock for uh, for a lengthy period of time, uh, live-in girlfriend. Uh, at the time of the crime, uh, they didn't really have anything to link her to. Uh, from what I understand, and she was, in fact, out of the country. So, Bob, how would a person like that, I mean, how would you interview a person like that? I, th- I think we would uh, probably classify them either as a person of interest or a percipient witness. Maybe you could discuss that. Sure. The, f- the first thing you want to do before you even interview her is find out everything you can about her so, so that when you walk into the interview, you know her as well as you can. And the second thing you, you need to realize, Ron, is that she could be a suspect. She could be a, a person who actually participated in bringing the weapons up to the room. She may have she may have discussed the crime with him. He may have told her what what he plans to do, and she may have overtly helped him bring the weapons up there, or, or actually procure ammunition or whatever. So you'd, so you'd want to check out everything you can find out about her. Find out if she did buy ammunition. Find out if she was. Uh, see on any of the videos of uh, bringing stuff up there. So we need to get that out of the way first so we know how to treat her as a suspect or a, or a witness. Hey, Bob, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a procedural question that I think our audience might find interesting. Uh, are we going to Mirandize her? I mean, under what circumstances uh, are we bringing her over to uh, the department to interview her? Um, my understanding, it was done voluntarily, which leads me to believe uh, this was a non-detention interview. Can you just take the audience through through this as an investigator and, and maybe discuss the Miranda issues and whether or not we Mirandize someone like that? Sure. If, if, if I did my research on her and I found out the things I had just talked about where it looks like she was actually a participant in the crime and she helped him and everything, when I bring her in, yes, I'm going to Mirandize her. She's, she's a suspect. If, if I haven't found out anything about her after doing some due diligence on the background of what I can find out about her, I bring her in as a witness. And I and basically what I'm telling her is, this happened, this is what your boyfriend did, we're trying to get information to help us understand why it happened, and maybe it'll prevent help us prevent it from happening again. We need your help. 
Okay. You know, uh, well, let me ask you another procedural question. And, and that is, you know, I think you and I have have seen some occasions where people get over-Mirandized. This usually takes place with federal officers. Uh, what, what are your What are your feelings on that? Well, it's it's a procedure. Uh, the FBI, for example, they Mirandize everybody they talk to. That's that's their procedure. It's been their procedure for years, and uh, and they don't record I, at least as of 2013, 12, somewhere in there. They they did not record their interviews. I. I, I think they do now, but back then they didn't. So that's how they do it. Um, we don't Mirandize, you know, unless a person's uh, uh, under arrest, uh, or in our case, what we used to do is if they're the focus of the investigation, if they're the if they're the focus as suspect, we are we are going to Mirandize them. And and sure, because if if we intend to uh, ask them questions that could lead to a, an incriminating response. Uh, you know, the citizen is afforded the protection of Miranda, un, un, you know, under the 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 fifth and sixth, uh, seventh amendments. And so uh, we want to make sure that that we do Mirandize them. Uh, Miranda also has to do with custody as well, though. That's correct. If if if, if you arrest somebody, they're in custody. Um, that obviously we're going to Mirandize them. Sure. Uh, our agency, if if. Uh, if, if you're the suspect in the case, I'm going to talk to you about a, a homicide, and I have, at that point I have probable cause to believe you committed the homicide, I'm going to Mirandize you. So, Bob, what types of forensic things would investigators look for to find out whether uh, there was some sort of connection uh, between a, a girlfriend and a, a suspect in an active shooter. Can you kind of take us through forensically some of the things that we would look for as investigators to, to try to make that connection? Well, sure. I'm, I'm going to take her back for the period of time when, when this would have been planned and, and uh, executed uh, up in the, uh, the uh, hotel room and find out what, what her activities were each day of that planning process, whether we have to go back two weeks or a week or whatever it was, and basically find out hour by hour what she was doing. You know, if she has a job, is she calling sick? Um, you know, do we have any records of her doing anything? Do we have any, uh, you know, phone records back and forth, texts, you know, all the usual stuff we'd look for. And uh, we, we would like to go to where she, she's staying and, you know, look, look through her stuff, you know, get her cooperation. Um, has he ever talked about suicide? Has he ever... Uh, you know, talked about hating any particular group. Does he have a, a, a hatred of anybody that works at the, at the uh, casino? Um, is he connected at all with anybody in, in, in the concerts? Has he ever talked about any of that stuff? And the list, the list would just go on and on and on until you're just exhausted. And, and you know, some of the things that we'll do is uh, we'll take that person's phone. I know they took uh, Paddock's phone. They're going to take her right. phone and they're going to forensically download everything out of that phone they possibly can. Uh, they're going to uh, trace that phone and its movements using the GPS signals. They're going to triangulate positions. I know with uh, Stephen Paddock, I think they plotted 160 separate locations uh, at different times of different days leading up uh, to the shooting to try to get an idea of what his movements are. Uh, for someone that was associated with him, maybe like a girlfriend, uh, they would certainly do uh, that same procedure. 
Uh, and then going from those areas, once they had an idea of what kind of vehicle that person drove, which they do, and about where that person was at certain times of days, uh, there is so much video surveillance in the city of Las Vegas, uh, it wouldn't be that difficult at all uh, for them to be able to uh, track, forensically track them uh, using uh, video uh, and actually physically watch them visit certain locations and reconcile that with time and date stamps uh, from uh, from their cell phones. That, that's correct. And, you know, in addition to that, you know, you're, you're going to be looking at emails. You're going to be looking at the credit card receipts uh, and anything that, that gives a trail. When you first sit down and, and talk to this individual, you're going to get her story. She's going to give you a story. She's going to give you uh, her, the account of everything she did, and you're, you're going to record it. And you're going to go back and reconcile that statement with the facts that you have, the forensic evidence that you have. You're, after you've looked at credit cards, videos, text messages, everything you have, because that's going to tell a story. And you're going to you're going to say, here's what she said, and here's what we know happened. And if we see a lot of lying going on there, uh, you know, we know we've got a problem. We we know something's not, you know, something's being hidden from us. Ooh. And so, we're, so we're, now we're going to start down another path with her. And, and I think that that's absolutely appropriate. You know, one of the things uh, that I found remarkable about Mr. Paddock, uh, according to the uh, law enforcement um, press conferences that they were doing, was that uh, I think they recovered something like 74 guns uh, from Mr. Paddock, both from the room and from uh, his residence. Uh, I believe he had uh, two large gun safes. Uh, he had cases and cases of ammunition. He had fire retardant clothing. He had a lot of things. He had body armor, as you uh, talked about at the beginning of the show. He had a lot of things like that. And, uh, you know, one of the questions that I would have, you know, for someone like Mary Lou Danley is, hey, you lived with this guy for, for several years. He had these gun saves. He had these cases of ammunition. Uh, just what did you think he was doing with all of that stuff? And, you know, perhaps asking her questions, did you ever used to see him gear up, uh, put weapons, uh, you know, in, in the car, grab cases of ammunition, and, and go someplace to shoot? Because, uh, you know, obviously you can go out to Nevada and it's uh, nothing but desert, and uh, you can find uh, secluded places to go shoot, but, uh, you know, did you ever accompany him? Did, did you ever know where he was going? Did he ever come home smelling like gunpowder? I mean, just some questions sure. like that, I think, are, are important. Well, did you did you ever go out with him to shoot? Yeah. What did he used to say when you were out there? Did he ever did he ever right. say like who he was pretending to kill? Did he ever talk about what he was what he was doing, what he was planning? You know, you'd be amazed if you ask the right question, you'll you'll get an answer. Absolutely. You know, uh, there was a lot of talk that that Stephen Paddock was was a fairly secretive person, but it just uh, amazes me that someone could live with somebody for uh, a number of years and uh, not have any clue uh, to what he was doing or planning, according to what she said. And, of course, uh, after the, the first initial interview, I think she did lawyer up. Uh, Bob, when we come back, I'd like to talk about uh, some of the, the controversy that has arisen uh, during this course of the investigation. Would you join me on that? Sure. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. 
Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American freestyle bullfighting. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the meanest half-ton fighting bulls on earth? This is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena. This is hand-to-horn combat on a level playing field. Go to shortygoramafb.com or find them on Facebook. It's bullfighting time. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud, and I'm your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, with our homicide expert, Bob Prevo, and we are discussing uh, active shooter Stephen Paddock at the now infamous Las Vegas Mandalay Bay shootings. And uh, Bob, let's just touch on uh, the controversies and the speculation and the wild media stories uh, that have come out and continue to come out uh, about this uh, horrendous act. Well, you, you know, Ron, I, I listen to everything that comes out. If, if you know, if there's a if there's a hunch, if there's a speculation, if there's something that you know may help, I'll listen to it. But my job is to filter out what I what I think is relevant because. I know more than the rest of them do about what's going on. I have facts that they're not privy to. And I'm not going to sit there and debate with them, you know, what if I agree or not agree. I'm going to just take it in, and if it's something I think I could use or I should follow up on, I will. Uh, but I'm not going to sit there and have a, a, a contest with the media about what theories are good or what theories are bad, because they don't know what I know. And I think that, and that's exactly right. You know, one of the things that just took up an inordinate amount of of time with with respect to the media and they just seem to be uh so anally focused on that was a i think it was like a six and a half minute uh you know window uh, from the time that uh the uh the security guard from mandalay bay uh ramos campos uh was first discovered and fired upon by paddock to the time that uh, he managed to uh, call for, uh, you know, call down to police. But I, I think people forget that uh, they're not using police radios, okay? They're just using uh, the security radios uh, for Mandalay Bay. And they have to go through a radio dispatcher for Mandalay Bay. They have to figure out what's going on. And then they have to transmit that information uh, as best they can uh, to local law enforcement. Sure, and if I heard that, uh, I, I would follow up on it and say, is, is this six minutes, is this a reasonable amount of time? Sure. And I would hear the explanation, I'd walk through it, and if, and if I'm satisfied, that's, that's, the end of the, that's the end of the discussion. I'm going to move on to something else. Right, exactly, and I think we also have to remember that uh, Ramos was uh, shot and wounded. I think he, he sustained a leg wound, uh, and you know he's getting shot in the hallway, just picture what it would be like. Remember, I said it's a very narrow hallway. It's about 50 yards long, and uh, Paddock's door is at the end, one end of that hallway. And to get to the first alcove, which is, you know, we've all been in hotels, an alcove is where you're going to uh, find a place where that's where the ice machine is, you know, that's where the soda machine is. It's not in the hallway itself. It's in a small alcove. And, uh, you know, sometimes they keep cleaning supplies. Uh, you know, there's a closet or a couple of closets there. Well, he gets shot, he's got to make it to that alcove. And, and if he crawled down the hallway, 
uh, to escape the flying bullets. I mean, that's going to take some time. So he's really burning up a lot of time. You know, for me as a homicide investigator, um, I think that that whole time thing is a red herring. Uh, you know, if that time can be accounted for, I agree with you. Let's just move on and, and, and get to the, the next point. And that's establishing uh, motive and, and secondary or tertiary suspects. It could have been something as simple as the radio reception was bad. Uh, who knows? But whatever it was, when the, when the police did the interview and they investigated, they were satisfied with the answer. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Bob, did you hear about the car that he had downstairs in the parking garage? They had found the uh, he, that he had a vehicle down there and it had some uh, uh, explosives uh, inside of that car. And there was some speculation that may, and he had fire retardant clothing up in the room. And there was some speculation that maybe he had a secondary plan uh, to cause enough havoc and chaos to be able to escape and go downstairs to his vehicle and maybe take that vehicle and try to get over to the where those jet fuel tanks were and uh, and blow those tanks. Well, since he's dead, we can't read his mind and we can't ask him what what his plan was, but. It doesn't seem realistically feasible that he thought he was going to make it down there. Right. Um, but who knows? Maybe maybe he did think that. Well, we know he did shoot uh, the uh, the the jet fuel tanks. Of course, he didn't realize that just jet fuel tanks. Uh, and you're a pilot, Bob, so you know this. Uh, the jet fuel tanks uh, have an outer uh, layer to protect. Uh, you know, protect for you know just for that. So people can't shoot into him. You know, it's interesting to note that he did have tracer ammunition, but for uh, what we've been able to establish, he never got to use that tracer am ammunition. Correct. And, and so for that motive, you know, of course I would listen to it. I find out we have another crime scene in the basement with the vehicle. There's a lot of things we want to know about that vehicle, where, he's, where it's been. Uh, you know, that's another separate investigation right there. But as far as what he was planning to do, who knows? I mean, right. you know, Hitler thought he was going to rule the world. So, you know, there's no there's no rhyme or reason. You know, uh, Stephen Paddock uh, had uh, made uh, some money as a professional gambler, but he'd also lost a great deal of money. Uh, my understanding is that he had lost uh, in the last couple of years about $12 million. Now, I don't think he was in debt at all. Uh, he still had an income from uh, real estate properties and things like that. But boy, I think a, a loss of $12 million uh, at a casino would uh, create uh, a lot of anger and uh, inside someone. And, and sometimes anger does lead to uh, vengeful acts, and, and that is at least one motive. So, you know, the one thing that hasn't been established yet, and I think it's very frustrating for law enforcement, I know it's extremely frustrating for the media, and that is... They haven't yet established a motive. Everything else is speculation. No, and, and if he had lost $12 million at Mandalay Bay and, and planted a bomb at Mandalay Bay, that's pretty cut and dry. He might have, he might have blamed it on rigged slot machines, for all I know. But this is this is different. You know, he's, he's firing into a crowd of people who are just out enjoying a concert, and it doesn't, you know, what's, what's the grudge? What's the reason? Right, and you know, he had been tracked... Uh, to a couple of different uh, places that had uh, similar venues. I know that he was in Chicago uh, a couple of weeks before this and was staying in a hotel overlooking a very large 
uh, venue with uh, thousands of people that had gathered uh, for some festival or something uh, in the city of Chicago, yet he did nothing there. Uh, he had also had uh, another, uh, they had also tracked him to Fremont Street, where I believe he had stayed at one of the hotels at Fremont Street. And of course, you know, we've both been to Fremont Street on, on numerous occasions, and they do have a lot of people that, that gather there as well. But I think he seized on that opportunity of Mandalay Bay to be able to create as much murderous havoc as he possibly could. Right, and, and the question is why. I mean, for all we know, him and his girlfriend went to a concert and got an argument, and it's always, you know, he blames it on the concert. We, Correct. We may never know. No, and and I think, you know, this is a good way to to wrap this show up uh, today and and just, you know, remind the people that that sometimes we can't totally solve a crime. Sometimes motive is elusive to us, and especially in a case where someone uh, has killed so many people and died by their own hands or in a case where they died by law enforcement. If we don't have good percipient witnesses uh, that knew something about him when we're trying to put together our criminal psychological profile, or in this case what's called a a psychological autopsy, uh, motive may continue to be elusive. So, Bob, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming back to a thread of evidence and and discussing uh, the Las Vegas uh, active shooter mass murder case, and I hope we can bring you back again uh, for another Uh, exciting edition of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud.